Exodus chapter 24 this evening. As we come to chapter 24, the uh, chapters 20 through 23, God has given the law of Moses to Moses. It's called the law of Moses, but it's the law of God given uh, to Moses, beginning with the Ten Commandments and then an elaboration on those Ten Commandments for several chapters in terms of how uh, they, you know, reach into the nitty-gritty of our lives and what they look like in the daily of, of human life. And then he picks the narrative up now having received the law here in chapter 24 by declaring now when he that is the Lord said to Moses uh, now he said to Moses come up to the Lord you and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar and Moses alone shall come near the Lord but they shall not come near nor shall the people go up to be with him and so the setting is this there at Mount Sinai and uh, the children of Israel, uh, two to three million of them are at the base of this mountain. God invites Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, which were the sons, two of the sons of Aaron, and thus the nephews of Moses, along with 70 of the elders, to make their way up some distance up uh, Mount Sinai. He is later then going to invite uh, Joshua is with them also. He is later then going to invite Moses and Joshua to come up even further up the mount, uh, Mount Sinai, and ultimately even Joshua will be left behind and Moses will go to the very top of the mountain and commune with God um, individually. So that's kind of what where all, the whole sequence of where this thing is going and uh, we get an overview of that as he starts to head into kind of the more uh, minute details here in verse. And so Moses came and told the people all of the words of the Lord and all of the judgments, all of the law that, that he had received, again chapters 20 through 23. And he spoke the word uh, of, of God, the law of Moses, to the children of Israel, not um, you know, just for the sake of doing it. But God is now desiring to enter into a covenant relationship uh, with the children of Israel. He has given them this law, not just so they would have more laws to live by than everybody else in the world, but that by keeping the law of Moses, they would distinguish themselves as a unique people among all of the other peoples uh, of the world. And as we obey the Word of God, we are different. We certainly, as the world gets darker and darker and crazier and crazier and more and more disobedient to God's Word. The downside is that it is becoming all of that. The upside is that our lives then, as we just simply obey the Word of God, stands out in contrast to that. And so God gave them this law in order that they would be a unique people, recognized as a unique people, as His people in the world. He reads the law of Moses to them with the idea that they are now they now have the freedom to choose whether they're going to agree to keep that law or not. God doesn't get anybody in a headlock. He's not going to force one single person into heaven. He doesn't force me on a day-by-day -day basis to obey Him or not obey Him. Uh, to not obey God's Word is not only to sin against conscience, it's to sin against nature, it is to sin against Him, but it is also to sin against myself. It is a hard, hard way to live. The Bible says the way of the 
the transgressor is hard. It is, it's a hard way to live. And, and so all a person needs is a motivation to obey God's word. Is Number one, the highest motivation is a love for him. But pretty soon you take a pounding. Everyone takes a pounding. There are consequences to disobeying God's word. And... Uh, when a person says, I'm tired of taking that pounding, I want to obey his, his word. But he doesn't force anyone. Nobody's going to be forced into heaven. No one's a force to o- obey him. I wake up every single morning just like you do, even as a Christian, and I choose that morning whether I'm going to walk with him that day or not. And, and so uh, he, the law is being presented to them. Are they now going to make a decision to be obedient to that law or not? We are free moral agents. We have the freedom to reject God or to uh, accept God, to obey God or disobey God. That's why our acceptance of God in Jesus and our obedience to God's word is a blessing to him. Because we have the choice uh, to do it or not to do it. And when we do that, that's what makes it uh, meaningful to God. Uh, Without choice, there's no meaning uh, to it. And so, all of the judgments and the words of the Lord are, are spoken to the people. And all of the people answered with one voice, not one dissenter, and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. We will keep the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. Count us in. Now, uh, nobody keeps the Law of Moses. Nobody even keeps the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and we're going to see in a moment here, God, they give the, okay, count us in, we're going to do this. God accepts that commitment as a recognition that they want to be a unique people in the world. But he recognizes that he cannot establish his relationship with them solely on the basis of the law of Moses. Otherwise, fellowship with God would be broken every time we obeyed or disobeyed. They make the commitment, three cheers, it's an excellent thing for them to do. But nobody can maintain a personal relationship with God on the basis of law. So God immediately comes in behind the giving of the law of Moses and he starts to institute sacrifice. He starts to describe the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, because that's going to be the basis of the covenant. Not their keeping of the law, but it is going to be a covenant that is based upon blood, based upon sacrifice based upon the death of the innocent for the guilty, all of it a picture of the greatest picture of that in human history, and that is Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. As we go through this entire section, all of it's about Jesus. Uh, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and he said, You do search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. And in the keeping of the law of Moses, that's what they thought. We keep the law of Moses, God's going to grade on a curve. If we do better than most people, we get into heaven. But Jesus said, these are they which testify of me. God never established a relationship, even in the giving of the law of Moses, upon the keeping of the law of Moses. It's always been about sacrifice. And it's always been a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that was going to come, the sacrifice of Jesus. The Bible teaches the book of Hebrews 
that the volume of the book, the entirety of the Old Testament, is a picture of Jesus Christ. It is a type of Jesus Christ. It points to Him. One of the brothers in the fellowship last week, he's, uh, he's a sweet brother, and he gives me materials on, uh, you know, the Jewish angle of things and stuff like that, and he's really into it. And so when he, uh, you know, gets a hold of a good article or a good magazine or something, he gives it to me. But... Um, and he gave me this one on, on the feasts and all, and I'm trying to find the time to get to it. And uh, I tell him each week I am. And, uh, but I always accept things by saying, number one, do I have to return this to you? If I have to return it, yeah, I'll give it to you right now. Cause I, uh, and so as long as you give me somewhere between uh, one day and six years to get to it, I'll accept it. And uh, we'll leave it in the hands of the Lord. But it's interesting, uh, he was talking about, just as an aside, when Jesus was dying on the cross, and uh, they were sacrificing. It was the time of the Passover, and uh, so they're making, they're offering the, the Passover sacrifices over at the temple, just two stones throw away from Calvary. And as they're offering that, of course, the high priest would then come out, and as the high priest would then give the ironic blessing upon the people: "The Lord bless thee. The Lord keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. The Lord be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon." thee and give thee peace and and that's the way they would close their meetings the high priest as he would offer that that blessing he would never offer it with his hands up here because he would be wearing the headband that said holiness unto the Lord the high priest would never raise his hand above that particular headband he would always give the ironic blessing at the temple at the high priest with his arms stretched out like this and he gives it at the very time that Jesus is on the cross he's the high priest the ironic blessing Jesus is the only one that can provide that blessing in a human life the whole thing talks of him of him I can't wait to get into heaven on the basis of several things but not the least of which is hopefully they're going to have some kind of a tape series or DVD series up there or something where I can see where every single line of this is ascribed to him it spoke of him remember in those days very few people could read and God understood that that's why there's stained glass in all of the uh, medieval churches and all very few people could read so they would take these scenes from the Bible put them up into the church so that people could come in and though they couldn't read they could remember yes that's where Jesus uh, multiplied the loaves and the fish that's where Jesus healed the leper that's where and he's the same God yesterday today and forever he'll do that in in my life no matter what the preacher was preaching on well in the same way in this imagery all that's going on in front of him it's not mindless ritual it is in order to communicate to people uh, the beauty of the heart of God toward them and all of it a picture of of Jesus so they make the, they agree we're gonna do all of this well we better move right on along here verse 4 and Moses then wrote all of the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel so this altar the twelve uh, the pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel and then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord 
immediately after them making a commitment now uh, to keep the law of Moses, uh, God begins to institute the sacrificial system. <laughs> He's going to base it upon on blood. Now, it's not going to be for a little while before he establishes the Levitical priesthood and the fact that the, pri the tribe of Levi is going to be the one that offers these sacrifices and they're the priestly tribe and that, that kind of thing. And so at this point in time, Moses gathers some of the, the young men of Israel in order to offer these sacrifices. Now, when you think of the priests of the Old Testament, I mean, don't think of you know, some group of uh, sissified guys you know, pouring over books day and night. These were tough guys. They were, in, 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 uh, they were butchers in, as a part of what they did. The offering of the sacrifices. No you know, uh, power tools or anything like that to do that. They did it all by hand. And so it's young men that they call uh, to do this. Otherwise we'll be there all day if we get a bunch of older guys uh, here. We'll never get this thing instituted. And the older guy said, yes, just get me a cup of coffee and I'll supervise. That's not really in there. But So what does Moses do? They offer the sacrifices. Moses took half the blood and he put it in basins. And half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Now the, al the altar represents the presence of God. So he takes the blood from the sacrifice. Half of it is, is uh, sprinkled uh, toward uh, God. It is offered toward God. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, reads the word to them again. They said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. We'll keep it, I'll tell you. If heaven is a matter of, if, if, if getting into heaven is a matter of keeping the law, count us in. We couldn't be more motivated than we are. And then what, what does Moses do? Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to these words. He takes half the blood and he sprinkles it upon the altar representing the Lord. He takes the other half and he sprinkles it on them. In other words, even at the very time of the giving of the law of Moses to the nation of Israel, the covenant with God was not based supremely upon the keeping of the law of Moses. It has always, the covenant has been based upon blood. No one gets into heaven on the basis of obeying any religious law, even a law as good as the law of Moses, because no one can get into heaven by keeping the law of Moses, because none of us can keep it. So what does God do? He provides another way, another covenant. A covenant based upon blood. And because it's based upon the sacrifice or the life of an innocent victim, and because the shedding of that blood doesn't change in any way, it's not based upon our obedience or our disobedience, thus the covenant is sure. And that's why Jesus, on the night before the cross, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, as he, as he passed out the cup, as passed the cup, as it had the, the wine in it, and uh, representing his blood, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. The covenant is based, our relationship, the surety of our relationship with God is based upon the shed blood of Christ, a finished work of Christ upon the cross. Thus, it's a sure uh, work. It's a sure salvation. So all the way from the beginning, it's been about blood, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to 
all these words. And then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the seventy of the elders. They depart now from the larger group, and uh, they go further up the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel uh, there, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So they come up on the uh, up, up the mountain, and as they come up the mountain, they they see the Lord. We're told they're the God of Israel. Now many people believe that what they saw was very likely a vision, because we know they could not have seen God the father in uh, John chapter 1 verse 18 uh, the Bible declares no one has seen God that is the father at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him so they say he must have seen a vision I think there's a superior explanation to them seeing a, a vision I, again I believe that what they're in the middle of is a Christophany which is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus remember Jesus did not come into existence. He is eternal. He did not come into existence when he was born into Bethlehem. And so he made appearances uh, as God, as God the Son, in the, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, when, when God speaks right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, there's some kind of a, you know, kind of a confab that occurs within the Godhead, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and uh, talking about uh, making God in our image and, and in our likeness. Uh, when uh, Jacob takes and he wrestles with the Lord, we're told uh, over the brook Jabbok and the Lord takes and puts his hip out of joint that's not a vision he actually wrestled with God but he couldn't have wrestled with God the Father God the Father is spirit so who did he wrestle with he wrestled with a, a pre-incarnate appearance a, a, a pre-born into the world appearance uh, of Jesus and I think that they're seeing uh, very much the same thing here there's not much of a description in terms of what they saw here, the, the greater description in verse 10 is not uh, of the God of Israel that they saw, but their attention, maybe the glory was so great that they didn't want to describe it, but they talk about what was under his uh, feet were like paved work of, of sapphire stone, very, uh, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Sapphire stone uh, comes in several colors, uh, but the predominant color, over half of all sapphire stone in the world uh, is blue and so we're talking they look down and under his feet they just see a blue that is more of a true blue and more beautiful than than the sky itself and so as as Jesus stands upon that it's a picture of him uh, above heaven his authority his sovereignty over all uh, of of creation and then the nobles Verse 11, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, uh, God, Jesus, did not, lay his, uh, did not lay his hand. So, wow, what does that mean? He didn't lay his hand on them. He didn't destroy them. How could, how could sinful man be in the very presence of God and not be, be destroyed? The blood, the blood, 
And uh, so uh, this is why they were able uh, to survive it. Now in the Old Testament, when the, the blood of sheep and goats was, was uh, sacrificed uh, for the sins of the people, it was a kofar, is the word, uh, Old Testament word for it. It covered people's sin until the sacrifice would come into the world that would cleanse us of our sin. Jesus dying on the cross, he, he provides us with cleansing from our sin, something in infinitely superior than what the Old Testament sacrifices uh, could do but they were thankful for the covering of the Old Testament sacrifice it covered their sin and allowed them to have a relationship with God on an inferior level but but some uh, a level that was superior to anything else in the world uh, at that time and so he didn't lay his hand on them in judgment and so they saw God and they ate and they drank most covenants in those days were celebrated then with a meal I mean, people are always looking to have a meal right and uh, so here you've got this great agreement that's occurred uh, not only between you know one human being and another human being one family and another family I mean that's a good excuse for a big bowl of pasta but uh, here is an agreement that's occurred between man and God between God's people and their God and so they celebrate it uh, with a meal let's have let's order some pizzas and have them brought in here uh, for so much to celebrate and then the Lord said to Moses come up to me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So he now beckons Moses to come uh, further up the mountain in order that he might give him the law uh, inscribed on stones. Why, do you, why does God inscribe his law on stones instead of maybe some deer skin, oxen skin, papyra, something like that, though that wasn't uh, kind of being used at that time. Why on stone? Because God never changes his mind. I mean, if I took all of the decisions that I made in my wisdom and all of that and put everything on stone, I'd have a pile of broken stones in the backyard. Because I changed my mind. I'm, I'm wrong uh, uh, some portion of the time. But God takes and He writes His law on stone because He knows He's always right. There's no new improved version coming. There is no revised version coming. Uh, the law was, was right. It's always been right. He wrote it on stones. He wasn't going to change his mind as he got more data and got a little wiser and a little smarter. He writes it on stone because people are either going to keep that law or they're going to break that law. But there's nothing in between. I like crossword puzzles. Some people think they're a waste of time. But what do they know? Anyway, I like crossword puzzles. And uh, I like them when I can finish them every once in a while. And uh, then i got to deal with pride. And, but anyway, um, but a great step forward in, in the, uh, for a crossword puzzle person is when they lay aside the pencil and go to the pen. And they start to fill it. Oh, stop it. Don't be laughing at me on this kind of stuff. Come up with these illustrations. But I mean, it is, it's a, it is a, well, it's a monumental step in the progress of a crossword puzzle person. And, uh, and so, and, and, and it expresses some level of, of, um, uh, confidence in, in what they're doing. Though you end up scribbling them all over and you wish you did do them in pencil. But, but the Lord knows He's not going to change this. So He writes it. This is His law. He does it in stone. It doesn't change. 
He's smart from day one. He's smarter than all of us. He's not getting smarter. His, his laws are right, and they're not going to be revised, so he writes them in this way. And so Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, as he leaves the 70 and, and uh, Aaron and her behind, he said, wait for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty... Let them go to them. And so uh, he, Moses has a, a shepherd's heart toward the people. He realizes that he could be uh, gone for a period uh, of time and the people need to be taken care of. Problems are going to arise. Who do they bring their problems to? And so he leaves Aaron and her in charge. And that's going to be uh, trouble. But that's, that's not his fault. That's just the way that it's going to work out. And then Moses, uh, Joshua's now left behind, went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. And now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain and the eyes of the children of Israel so they're down at the base of the mountain they're looking up at the top of the mountain and there's this like fire and cloud and it's like who can survive up there Moses is up there meeting with God it was just awesome for them to, to uh, see it but that's how they they, they viewed it from down below. And so Moses went into the midst of the cloud. And he went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So alone with God there for almost uh, six weeks. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Give to the children of Israel. God is now going to give Moses the plans for the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle, sacrificial system and all. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, not to the world, only children of Israel, those in a covenant relationship with him. Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart you shall take an offering and uh, and and so God is is going to as we're going to see in just a moment he's he's going to uh, give the instructions for the building of the tabernacle uh, the tabernacle was just a, a very very large tent which God declared, as we'll see in just a few minutes, where God said, I will meet with you. It was kind of God's home in the midst of the children of Israel. They all had homes, and uh, God said, I want you to build me a home in, in, your, in your midst. This would have been unique in the ancient world, because in the ancient world, they had what was called, their, their deities were all territorial. So that's why when, uh, say, the Gibeonites or the Perizzites would fight against another group of people say in a valley and they were defeated they would come to the conclusion that their God was no good in the valley but maybe he was good on the hilltops so they would then try and fight their next battle up on the hilltops in the hopes that their God would be strong up on the hilltops and their enemies gods would be weak up on the hilltops and and so it was kind of like when you go from one city to the next and, and you kind of lose the radio station <clears throat> deal they only have power so far 
something. That Jehovah was going to be unique in, in human history in that he never lost power. He, uh, anywhere you went, he was just as powerful as he'd always been. And not only that, but here was a God who traveled with his people. If they were in the valley, he was with them as fully in the valley. If they were on a mountaintop, he was with them as fully on the mountaintop. He dwelt with them. He lived with them. He was always present with them. And uh, we kind of take that for granted. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is in us. He is with us all the time. It was something that was amazing to people in that time. Our God wants to be in our midst. Wow! That was, that was something to them. And so God is, is going to uh, now you know, arrange for the building of this tabernacle so that he can uh, dwell with them uh, in this way and give them a symbol of, of his presence. And so now he wants to gather the, <clears throat> the materials for the building of the tabernacle. And so the people, children of Israel, were to be informed uh, that Moses was going to take an offering of some specific things we're going to look at in just a moment. And the people, God's people, were free to then give into that offering to build a tabernacle or a, a home for God. And, and the tabernacle would be the place that God would meet with the children of Israel. That's why one of the names of the tabernacle in the Old Testament is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of meeting. It represented his presence and uh, represented where they would meet with him. He does not want to build this tabernacle uh, from... He, he doesn't want them to take an offering of, you know, the Jebusites or the Perizzites or the Hittites or anything like that. Uh, the, the offering is all to come from the children of Israel. It is a free will offering. People can give to it or not give to it. It's their choice to do that. Uh, not all of God's offerings in the Old Testament were free will offerings, but this one was. He did not want want this to be built uh, uh, with any kind of constraint or anything. It was all to be uh, uh, offerings that were uh, free will coming from a people's uh, heart. Even as it speaks in the New Testament of our giving to God, uh, Paul said, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's the kind of giving that he wanted uh, toward this. God could have just miraculously said, boom! And there's a tabernacle. In one second. I mean, no aggravation, no involving his people. Uh, all the craftsmen that would have been involved in it and everything could have just spoke it into existence. But he doesn't. Again, as we saw this morning, he uses his people uh, in, in his work because he's teaching us things. As he does it, he's given us the privilege of being uh, a part of his work uh, in, in the world. And so uh, he, he allows uh, them to, to give toward it. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. The things that uh, people were going to be free to offer. Gold, silver, bronze, uh, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, Spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod of the breastplate. And so these were all uh, things that were going to be used in the construction of the tabernacle, also in the construction of the furnishings of the tabernacle, uh, also involved in... 
the uh, uh, garb and all and, and uh, that the, the high priests would wear uh, the things that, that were part of, of their purposes too. One of the interesting things about uh, the building of the tabernacle, you've got gold, you've got silver, you've got bronze, varying values of metals and varying values of different kinds of skins and, and all. It's interesting that as all of these things are put to use in the building of the tabernacle and the worship associated with, with the tabernacle, that the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, which was the, the part of the tabernacle that represented the presence of God, uh, the more valuable the metals or the materials that were involved. The further away from it, the more inferior uh, the metals and all were, though all of them were, were quite valuable. And here's the purpose of, of the tabernacle. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wanted to dwell among his people. He wanted them to have that, that confidence of, uh, of that and, uh, and, and to be in their midst in, in that way. And so it symbolized his, his presence with them. And, and so that was what it was going to be uh, all, all about. And then notice um, in verse 9, according to all that I show you, God said, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings just so you shall make it. God said to Moses, listen, this is the tabernacle I, I wanted. I'm not asking for you to be creative. I'm not asking for you to be a genius. I'm not asking for your wisdom. I'm not asking. Here is the pattern. Here's the blueprint. I'm going to give it to you. Just build it the way I tell you to build it. Now, there's a lot at stake of that. Moses could have said, oh, come on. I mean, I think it would be a little better if we kind of tilted it this way and uh, brought the roof up a little bit, I, the ceiling. I think it would be good for lighting and, uh, and headroom. And, but he was not to improve on it. And the reason was is that the tabernacle and then later the temple, it is, we're told in the book of Hebrews, and even here, uh, later, uh, later on, book of um, uh, Ezekiel and elsewhere, Revelation is a pattern of heaven. It's a pattern of heaven. So as we learn the tabernacle, once we're in that heavenly scene, we're not going to see a physical tabernacle up there, uh, probably not, but what we're going to see is we're going to see heaven laid out in the way that this tabernacle was laid out. So pay attention here. If you get up there into heaven and you start looking around and say, Wow, look at how I can't, what? And then somebody might just say to you, What church did you go to that you never studied the book of Exodus? Well, I slept through that study on everything. And it might just boot you out of heaven no matter what on, on things. So, but this is, it's a picture of heaven. And, uh, and the model was given. Moses didn't have to be super talented. He didn't have to be super brilliant. He didn't have to be super creative. All he needed to do was be obedient to give God uh, what it is that, that he uh, wanted there. God gave him the plan. Just build it. And, and uh, I think about uh, how simple life is, how simple ministry is, if we just do that. Use the plan, the model, the plan book right here, you know, in, in all of it. Don't have to be too smart. Don't have to be too creative. God, deliver us from uh, clever men and women is my prayer today. People think they're so smart, smarter than God, and, and uh, 
in, in ministry, how to build not only a tabernacle, but to build the New Testament church and uh, the body of Christ and all. Stick with the plan. Stick with the plan. And, and God will bless it. So God warns Moses, I'm giving you the plan, and I want you to, to do it uh, just this way. And then the, they shall make the first thing that he moves into now, uh, as he's talking about the tabernacle and the furnishings, before he gets to the tabernacle itself, he starts to talk about some of the furnishings, the furniture that's going to be inside of the tabernacle, very sparsely furnished, uh, furnished but each of the furnishings represents something beautiful uh, about the Lord. And he begins with the most uh, important furnishing in, in the tabernacle, and that is the Ark of the Covenant, the holiest of all of the furnishings, because it represented the Lord himself. And they shall make an ark of acacia uh, wood and the ark itself shall be two and a half cubits. A cubit in those days was measured roughly the distance from your elbow uh, to the tip of your longest finger. On average it was about uh, 18 inches and so it was to be two and a half cubits in, in length, that is 45 inches, a cubit and a half uh, in its width, 27 inches, and a cubit and a half in its height, another 27 inches. So about two-thirds the size of um, uh, an acceptable hope chest. So it's really not uh, a very large uh, piece of, of, of furniture. It's going to be heavy because it's going to be coated with gold on the in, inside and the outside. And, and this Ark of the Covenant was the only furnishing inside the Holy of Holies. In the, in you, I think you got a drawing that was given to you when you came in. The tabernacle had two compartments, only had two rooms. One third of that tent, uh, or that tabernacle, was the Holy of Holies. Fifteen feet by fifteen feet by fifteen feet. Not a very large room. Uh, then the remainder of the tabernacle was two-thirds that size, and uh, 30 by 15 by 15, and, and, and it was called the holy place. So when you first come into the tabernacle, that first doorway or the first opening, you go through a curtain, you would come into the holy place. Um, the priests were allowed to come into the holy of place. You had to be a priest in order to do it. Uh, so any priest could come into that area and attend to their work there. It, then there was another curtain that would separate you from the holy of holies, what is holy even in a context of holiness. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant, the only furnishing in that room. And in the Jewish law, the high priest, only one man, that being the high priest, the holiest man in the nation, he could only go into that room one day out of the year, on the Day of Atonement. And he could only enter into that room after a sacrifice had been offered not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sin. The room was so holy uh, and such a test of the holiness of the high priest that they uh, would put bells in, in the shape of, of pomegranates on the base of his robe and everything and... And, uh, and then later they would tie a rope to his foot in case he went in with kind of known sin in his life into the Holy of Holies and God would strike him dead. Now what do you do? You, you going to go in and get him? You better be braver than Red Adair, you know, who puts out all those burning oil fires around the world. If he got snuffed, what's going to happen to you? 
So they put a rope around his legs so that, oh, we're not hearing bells anymore. <laughs> Bad sign. And you just would pull him out. On th- it was the holiest place of all on things. And, th- and, that was, and this was the lone furnishing in, in that uh, uh, place. So uh, th- that's where it, it was placed. And it represented, again, the very presence of the Lord. You shall, he said, overlay it with pure gold, not just any gold, the very best gold, inside and out, you shall overlay it. And so you had this acacia wood, it was constructed of acacia wood, and then that acacia wood was overlaid with fine gold. The acacia tree, it's always fun, uh, if you go on a trip to Israel, we spend one day out in what's called the Judean wilderness, out there by the Dead Sea and all, and you just drive through this place where there's no... Well, they're, they irrigate now, so there's palm trees and date trees, and, you know, they've really made the land bloom and all. But where it's, it, it's driest, left in its most natural state, you see these trees just growing in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it would really be welcome shade if you weren't in an air-conditioned bus, which is the superior thing. But uh, you look at it and say, how can they survive in the heat of this weather, I mean, all year round and everything, and yet they do survive. Amazing trees. One of the characteristics of, of the acacia tree, or some of the characteristics, is, is a very, very hard wood, very, very strong wood. It is, interestingly enough, a disease and insect-resistant wood. And so the fact that acacia wood is used here uh, in, in the building of the Ark of the Covenant as a representation of Jesus, it represents the incorruptibility uh, of Jesus. You have the combination now of the wood being overlaid with uh, gold in the making of that ark. That's an Old Testament type of Jesus also. The wood representing his humanity. The gold speaks of his deity. And so you have both united in his incarnation. When he came into the world, uh, born into the world, here he is fully God, fully man, all at the same time. And he needed to be that. He needed to be both wood, both gold, both full man, both uh, fully God, in order to provide us with a personal relationship uh, with God. Only a union of humanity and deity could have provided us with a Savior. Because it, the only, he had to be, there had to be humanity for him to die. And he needed to die. And, and he, he couldn't have died purely in, in, his, human, in his deity. And yet, the one who died had to be absolutely perfect. So the necessity uh, of, of the deity. And so, our salvation required both death and perfection. And so, again, the humanity allowed for his death. His deity provided us with a needed, perfect, sinless uh, sacrifice. And uh, so, a picture of him. Notice in verse um, uh, at the end of verse 11 here, as a part of the ark, you shall make a molding of gold all around. So you would have this kind of a chest that would be there, and uh, all the way around, there, it would have an opening. You could put things inside of it. God's going to put something inside of this, uh, this ark, this chest. But all the way around it was kind of a lip. 
and uh, in order that when the mercy seat or the cover was put on it, there was no way that that mercy seat could slip off. And we're going to see that it's very, very important that the mercy seat never slipped off the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The reason that God put a lip on there was to assure that, the, that it would never come off if the priest slipped while they were transporting it. The only way to get that uh, mercy seat off of the top of the Ark of the Covenant was to deliberately remove it. And there were big problems when uh, a group of the children of Israel decided to uh, deliberately remove it, which we'll talk about in, uh, in just a moment. But that lip was put on there uh, in, in order that if they were transporting it, they always transported it by, uh, by hand. As they transported on the poles, if somebody slipped, that cover would stay, uh, stay on it. And so um, uh, the... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, because the lid covered the law and, uh, and, and so there wouldn't be any ramifications if the priest slipped in the same way in, in Christ when, when we slip the wrath of God does not come forth uh, upon us but his mercy remains he's found a way to keep mercy firmly in place between us and the demands of the law of Moses as we'll see in just a moment notice in verse 13 you shall make poles of acacia wood Overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from them. And so they, you had the ark of the covenant that was right there, on, and then on the corners you would have the rings for the poles. The poles would be put in. The poles were never to be removed because when the ark of the covenant was transported, it was always to be carried by priests. That's how that was. Uh, was supposed to be happened. Remember, in, in the fashioning of all of these articles, they need to be fashioned in a way that made them portable. This was a pilgrim people. They were moving. And so there had to be a way to, to uh, transport these. And so the rings were uh, built right into the furnishing uh, for the poles to be put in so that they could be carried uh, in, in that way. The ark was never to be touched in the course of its transportation. That's why later it was always always to be carried by the poles. That's why later, remember, when David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, when he had made Jerusalem the capital of, of uh, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, he's transporting it into Jerusalem. And he, how is he transporting it? On the back of a, a cart that's being pulled by oxen, which was the Philistine way of transporting. The ark was not to be transported that way. It was to be carried by priests. And so as they make their way, they hit a dip in, in the road uh, along the way, and the cart becomes unstable. Looks like the Ark of the Covenant is going to tip over. Uzzah reaches out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, and God kills him right on the spot as a result. But stops the whole parade. Sends David, the priests, the people of God, back to the Word of God in order to relearn and figure out how this article was to be transported. It wasn't just to be transported any old way. David is enjoying it. All of the people are enjoying it. They're dancing and everything as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Everyone's enjoying themselves but God. 
because of the disobedience. And, and so he sends them back to, if you ever have something that hits you in your life and sobers you up and you go, okay, that didn't go very good. Uh, something is wrong here. We go back to the Word of God. God, what does your Word tell me to do? here in this, this situation so I can, can uh, do it right. And that's always a good thing. Now here's the imagery uh, of it. It wasn't just a picture of... It, the portability of the Ark of the Covenant and the poles and all, it was important that, that it, it, it would be uh, portable in that way. But the reason that the Ark of the Covenant was always to be carried by priests, again, is a picture of the New Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And how is the presence of God carried around the world today? By priests. By a kingdom of priests. By God's people as we walk through this world, as we go everywhere in this world. The presence of God only goes out into the world as we transport it through our lives. It was all a picture of, of the new covenant. And so the imagery had been spoiled. God sent them back. They, David ultimately does bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem when the priests realize, okay, we've made a mistake here and sinned against God. It's to be carried by priests. The Bible says, by the way, that we are a kingdom of priests as Christians. A priest in the Old Testament had a twofold function. His responsibility was to represent God before the people, be a witness to God, then to represent the people before God in prayer. That's our responsibility. Responsibility. Whether I work at the Medesto B or I look, work at Doctor's Hospital or w no matter where I, I work in this world, I am a priest as a Christian. I am representing God before these people. And then I am to represent these people toward God in prayer and intercession uh, for them. And so the imagery is, is very, very beautiful. It was to be transported by people. We transport the very presence of God inside of us, the Holy Spirit in the same way and you shall put into the ark so something's going to go inside this ark the testimony which I will give you and that's a reference to the law of Moses to the Ten Commandments the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses was going to receive here in the future that was to be placed inside of the ark uh, of, of the, the uh, covenant and then God moves right on in verse 17 and says you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. In other words, the lid is to be exactly the size of the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It is a perfect fit for the top of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to get into the imagery here in just a moment in terms of the law being inside of that. But you couldn't have a mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant that was two-thirds the size of the top or one half the size of the top because sinful man needs to have pure complete mercy between them and the demands of the law of Moses of the Ten Commandments inside of the Ark of the Covenant it's the only way for us to uh, stand in the face of the demands of the law of Moses so it needed to be that exact same uh, size and, and so uh, significant uh, that uh, that it was the law placed 
in the midst of the Ark of the Covenant and, uh, uh, and that's why the Ark of the Covenant is known as the Ark of the Covenant because it held the law uh, of God and without realizing that it holds the, uh, the covenant of God or the Ten Commandments we can't understand uh, the great reason for the mercy seat apart from knowing that it was to kept, be kept between a sinner and the law. Now the law uh, represents and represented the righteous standard uh, of God. And that's what the law of Moses is. Nothing, the Bible says there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. Uh, if anyone could be saved by keeping a law, it would by, be by keeping the law of Moses, uh, Paul said. The problem is, is that we can't keep the law of Moses. Uh, we're we're uh, sinners. And because of that, the law is referred to as the ministration of death to sinful man. Because the law of Moses exposes every one of us to be uh, sinners. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said in this vein, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, uh, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, speaking of the law of Moses, written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 7 and he said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Uh, I, he tried to, you know, keep the law, but even Paul was unsuccessful in it. It condemned him to death. For, by, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. He also said in writing to the Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages of sin is death. So the law of Moses condemns, it exposes every person in this world. Somebody, you know, people sometimes say, you say, how do you know you're going to heaven? I keep the Ten Commandments. Come here, come here, come here, come here. You don't keep the Ten Commandments. You don't keep the Ten Commandments. You don't know the Ten Commandments. Nobody can take a statement like that and be serious. Nobody keeps the Ten Commandments. Read the first one. Nobody keeps the first one. So, uh, you know, so people say, I'm going to get into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. Nobody gets into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. It exposes us as sinners. It reveals that the standard that is required for entrance into heaven is perfect. It exposes us to be already short of perfection. It then causes us come, to come to the end of trying to uh, put our effort in any kind of religion or system by which I earn my way into heaven and now I am looking for a way that God has provided through blood uh, a sure covenant for me to enter into heaven. A covenant based upon grace, the sacrifice uh, of, of another. So the law condemns us as sinners. The law uh, sentences us to death, to eternal death. So God's got a problem. God loves us. We're His creation. 
He wants a relationship with us. He wants to save us. He wants every single human being in this world to be in heaven. But he cannot ignore the righteous standard of his word, what it demands, the law demands, and continue to be righteous himself. So how does he find a way for you and I to get into heaven and still maintain the high and perfect holy standard of heaven? In other words, how does he remain just, a just and holy God, and still be the justifier of sinful man, still save you and me? There's only one way to do it. There's a mercy seat. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, and the way that he's done it is the salvation that is found in Christ. Because nobody, because when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the Bible says that his righteousness is put to our account so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He is not lowering his standard by allowing us into heaven as a result. And yet no one can look at the blood-covered, the spit-covered, the abused Savior hanging upon the cross of Calvary and ever say that Jesus... Uh, that, that God is soft or easy on sin. That sin uh, is no big deal to Him. So in Jesus, He has found a way to remain just and become the justifier, the Savior of sinful man. And it's the only place in all of anywhere you want to go in eternity or in creation that is the only place that allows God to save sinful man in the light of the demands of the law of Moses and and so that's why Jesus of course came in into the world so he wants to save us but he can't ignore our sin can't minimize the import the seriousness of of our sin and so how does he forgive, save sinful man without minimizing the seriousness of sin? The mercy seat. He finds something to put between the righteous requirement of the law inside that, that Ark of the Covenant and sinful man. He puts a mercy seat there. And that mercy seat is a picture of Jesus. It's interesting, in fact, the word that is used for mercy seat in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word that's used for mercy seat in that Septuagint is the same word that is translated propitiation in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, which speaks of Jesus' sacrifice and death upon the cross as the full and satisfying payment for our sins. And, and so, with whom God sent forth, we're told there, speaking of Jesus, to be a propitiation, a full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins by His blood through faith. Our faith in Him as our Savior has placed His sacrifice on the cross between us and the judgment, the that the, the, the God's righteous law declares that we deserve. And they put that lid on the top of that, that mercy seat and it separated the demands of the law of Moses from, from the sinner. Just as that was put in that place, Jesus had to die on the cross at Calvary in order to be a mediator between God and man. Between the demands of that law and, and the actual condition of, of sinful man. Jesus alone satisfies the righteous requirement 
of, of that uh, law. And so the mercy seat allowed sinful man to meet with a perfectly righteous and holy God because it put mercy between man and the requirement of the law. And as a mediator, Jesus allows sinful man to have a personal relationship with a perfectly righteous and holy God. Praise the Lord for Jesus. Praise the Lord for the mercy that is found in Him. Because of our faith in Him, mercy has been placed between us and the righteous judgment of God. And He's the only one that could do it. And He's done it for us. Book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, uh, speaks of, of all of, of this. Now with the blood of goats and calves, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot or God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So... How important is it that no person, no single person in this room, in the city of Modesto, Ceres, Keys, Ripon, uh, uh, Salida, Manteca, go anywhere you want to go, anywhere in the world, how important it is, is it that no one ever come face to face with the righteous demands of the law of Moses without a mercy seat? It is life and death important. And it is eternally life and death important. Fascinating story uh, account happened in 1 Samuel chapter 6 in the Old Testament to illustrate all of this. When the children of Israel had, or the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant from the children of Israel in battle. And it became a, quite a plague to them. Uh, but even they were not foolish enough to take the mercy seat off of the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Finally, they want nothing to do with it. They've been plagued one city after another and tumors and, and sickness and all this stuff. And they said, enough of this. Uh, let's give it back to the children of Israel. So they put it on a cart with oxen pulling it and the Ark of the Covenant. They, they send the, in the animals in the direction of the children of, of Israel and go on, take this thing back uh, to the children of, of Israel. And as this, the oxen and the cart and the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in the back of this cart makes its way uh, into the field, we're told, of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. The, the children of Israel, the men out in the field, they see the Ark of the Covenant coming uh, in here it comes the Philistines had captured and it's coming our way and all of it and, and they come and gather around the whole thing they lift the lid off it they lift the lid off of the Ark of the Covenant and God struck 50,070 men of the people as they lifted, lifted the lid of the, of the Ark uh, uh, that mercy seat off of the Ark of the covenant it meant instant uh, physical death for them nobody ever wants to face God or face the righteous demands of the law of Moses uh, face to face 
without a mercy seat, without Jesus between them and, and the righteous demands of, of that law of Moses. For them it was a physical death, but it's even more life and death important, eternal life and death important, that no one leaves this life without making Jesus their Savior and their Lord. Otherwise, on the other side of this life, you will face the righteous demands of the law of Moses without a mercy seat, and it will condemn you to death. It will condemn you to e eternal uh, judgment. Sometimes people look and they say, well, you know, I, I don't think I'm much of a sinner. Listen, if you, if you don't know Christ tonight, you are a sinner up one side and down the other. You not only sin against God every day, you sin against nature. You sin against your conscience. You sin in ways that you don't even have to know the Bible and you should be convicted of your sin. That's just the way it is. It was a way for me before I came to know the Lord, everybody else that knows the Lord. But all of us are condemned uh, as, as sinners. And if we do not listen to the voice of nature, creation, the voice of conscience, and, and all sinning against how we've been created, how we've been created to, to um, operate, uh, homosexual is a great example of this, uh, to sin against conscience, where my conscience is telling me, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, but I do that because everybody else is doing it, but I think that there's no consequence to it, but that conscience is God given in my life we all have sinned against conscience to say nothing of, of the law of, of Moses and so there, there's judgment that, that awaits uh, on the other side of it and nobody wants to face that righteous requirement of the law without having Jesus as our mediator, our mercy seat, the one that stands between us and the judgment that we deserve and so how do I do that? I put my faith in Him as my Savior and my Lord. And then He becomes my mercy seat. And because of that, I will never face the righteous wrath of God or the law of Moses in my life. Because He bore it for me. He already bore it for me. And there's no need for me now to bear it for myself. So it's very, very important. The mercy seat was to cover the ark. It stood between the righteous requirement of the law and guilty fallen man. Don't ever get caught facing the law, the righteous requirement of the law, apart from Jesus. Now what am I? I'm a pastor in a Central Valley town in California. And I'm standing before wonderful group of people just trying to tell the truth from God's Word about these things. Don't ever, you must give your life to Christ. Because if you don't, when God judges you, He, it, not only it will be, it will it will be it will glorify his justice and his judgment in doing so but he wants to save you he wants to forgive you come to know him today come to know him tonight God loves you wants to forgive you and save you do not find yourself on the other side of this life in eternity facing that requirement of the law as a person that doesn't have Jesus between you and it 
And the interesting thing about all of this, the typology and all, all speaks of Jesus. It only speaks of Jesus. There is no typology here of Mary. There is no typology of Protestantism, Catholicism, no typology of denominationalism or non-denominationalism, not a pope, not a church, not a anything. There are no substitutes. Jesus alone is the mercy seat. I had a, a woman upset with me a couple, three weeks ago. Caught me at the back door after a Sunday morning. People generally aren't upset with me. Usually they just um, never come back. But, uh, so they don't communicate. She's really upset with me. And she said, when are you going to stop bashing the Catholics? I think I, for two Sundays in a row I, I mentioned vain and repetitious prayers. You know, as, And I come from a little bit of a Catholic background and that kind of thing. So bashing, I didn't know. Is bashing them by you know, referencing them as, as an example of this kind of thing? I don't I think I said everyone was like that. And she was an ex-Catholic. I said, well, why are you an ex-Catholic? Why aren't you still a Catholic? Because they're wrong and I disagree. Stop bashing the Catholics. I hate that when they bash the Catholics like that, right after they've accused me of bashing the Catholics. What am I going to do? You know, I'm going to stand before God one day, and I'm going to face a harsher judgment than almost everyone in this room for how faithful I've been to declare this word. And how, what am I going to say to God one day? Where I live in a world, and, and people, the Catholics have come to know the Lord in here. There are Catholics that attend the Sunday night, and they're still attending Catholic Church and all. They think I'm being fair with the Word of God, and I'm be, even being fair with what I'm saying right now. I live in a world where no matter what an individual Catholic believes or what related to Jesus, as a system... They teach that the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross is not a finished work. That we are saved by faith and keeping the sacraments. There is no getting around that. And anything you add to what Jesus did on the cross and saying it is not sufficient, you are saying what he did there was not good enough. And when you live in a world where there are tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of people who are invested in a system that is pulling them away from God, that has them potentially trusting in something that is going to put them in a place where they are going to face the law without a Savior and without a mercy seat, you've got to speak up. But it's, it's the same thing as falling asleep in a Protestant church and think I'm saved because I'm attending that or what. There is only one mercy seat. There's only one way of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father or can stand before the Father except through Him. And that's the way that it is. And it's going to get harder and harder and harder to be faithful and make that kind of stand for the Lord in this world and in this country. But somebody made that stand so you and I could be pointed to Jesus as the only way and not these other systems. And we owe it to those who are going to come to faith after us to make that same stand and give them that same kind of clarity.
No matter how big a church becomes or doesn't become, how popular we are or unpopular we are, how many people like us, don't like us, how many people want to hang around with us or don't hang around with us, eternity is going to be a very long time for celebrating our faithfulness to God. We have an obligation to tell the truth about these things. Do not, I beg you, do not find yourself on the other side of this life separate from a faith in Jesus Christ, the only mercy seat, the only Savior. We'll stop there and he goes on and says some great things about all of this, but I'm already uh, nine minutes late. Um, and so we'll pick it up next time. Let me just take a look here at this. Okay, no, don't, don't, don't close your Bible yet. Let's just read through because I basically said everything that's uh, in there on this except for several observations. We'll be out of here by 8.30. He said, he said, you shall make the mercy seat of pure gold, deity, right? All deity, no wood in that, right? Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width, perfect fit. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. So you couldn't bolt it down. It was to all be molded in this one solid uh, uh, piece. And the cherubim shall stretch their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another and the faces of the cherubim shall look down toward the mercy seat now this is beautiful because this is what Peter is talking about when he talks about the salvation that we have in Jesus and the angels looking at that salvation looking at that Savior and, and being baffled by it being wondered by it and all and uh, speaking of the salvation that we have in Christ and here it is the angels are looking down on the mercy seat and this is what Peter is referencing as is they're looking at this wonderful mercy seat this wonderful amazing Savior that God in human flesh would die on the cross for man's sins they can't believe it they live in heaven they know what it's like they can't believe that God would be willing to pay such a sacrifice for such as, as you and I. It leaves them in awe. It leaves me in awe. leaves you in awe uh, tonight. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from the, above the mercy seat. And in that mercy seat, God can only meet with sinful man. When there's a mercy seat, a Savior in place. From between the two cherubim which are in, on the ark of testimony. About everything which I will give you in commandment uh, to the children of Israel. Let's stand together. The worship team will come forward. That would be great too. <clears throat>